Well, brothers and sisters, I am excited about this day, kind of our last look at the uh, story of Joseph. And so we've got the 45th chapter of Genesis. And last week, uh, when Andrew preached, we, he, he read the first three verses, but I'm going to go ahead and repeat those uh, just so that we have a little bit of context as we go into this last chapter. And so let us read or hear that now. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, send everyone away from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. So dismayed were they at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. And they came closer. He said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. You shall settle in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, as well as your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. I will provide for you there, since there are five more years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have will not come to poverty. And now your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my own mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father how greatly I am honored in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, while Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. And when the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. Pharaoh and his servants were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your animals and go back to the land of Canaan. Take your father and your household and come to me so that I may give you the best of the land of Egypt and you may enjoy the fat of the land. You are further charged to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Give no thought to your possessions for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so. Joseph gave them wagons according to the instruction of Pharaoh and he gave them provisions for the journey. To each one of them, he gave a set of garments. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five sets of garments. To his father, he sent the following, ten donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers on their way, and as they were leaving, he said to them, do not quarrel along the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. 
And they told him, Joseph is still alive. He is even ruler over all the land of Egypt. And he was stunned. He could not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph that he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Israel said, Enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I must go and see him before I die. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray. God, we give you praise for the story of Joseph, for the ways in which it speaks to us, for the ways in which it reaches into our hearts, for the ways, God, in which we can see ourselves in each person of the story. We pray, Lord, that the story would continue to speak to us now. May it revive our spirit, that we may continually become more and more like you. I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So finally, after many weeks of traveling through the Joseph story, we have finally have the big reveal, if you will. Right? And last week, um, Andrew briefly touched on it, but this week we get to see both kind of Joseph telling them uh, who he really is, and we get to see how the brothers respond. Right? It's clear that they were not expecting this. Right? Joseph doesn't say, hey, I'm, I'm Joseph, and all of a sudden Judah's like, I knew it, right? Or, or, or we don't all of a sudden see Simeon being like, ha yeah, pay up, guys. I told you this was our brother, right? No. What do they say? Nada, right? They say nothing, nothing at all, right? And, and so what does Joseph do? Well, Joseph, right, Joseph then tells them to come closer to him, and you can imagine, right there, this is how I picture it, at least the whole group just kind of, right, slowly getting closer until he says it's far enough, right? And then he says again, I am Joseph, your brother. And as if they don't quite get, well, now, which Joseph? We had a brother, Joseph. He says, the one you sold into Egypt. Oh, that one. And I don't know why, maybe it's that he can hear their knees knocking, maybe it's the fact that, you know, they're just slowly now kind of walking back towards the exit. For whatever reason, it's clear, right, that they are afraid, and understandably so. And so he quickly goes on to tell them, don't, don't worry about it, right? God, God put me here in order to save all of you all, right, to save all of this place. And then he goes on to quickly say, now go, go tell dad exactly what's happened. Go tell him how I'm alive. Go tell him how I am in charge of all of Egypt. And they still seems perhaps to not completely believe it, right? He goes on, he says, look, look at my mouth, right? The same mouth that used to always tell you about all these great dreams. Look at this mouth. You remember it. I am Joseph, your brother. And at this moment, there's this kind of remarkably intimate time when Joseph falls basically onto Benjamin's neck and, and begins to weep and begins to kiss him. And, and for the first time, we see Benjamin actually doing something. And what is he doing? He is weeping back. 
And then Joseph goes to each brother down the row and to all of them he has hugged and all of them he has wept upon and all of them he has kissed. And then we're told, then they are able to begin to talk. Then they are able to dialogue. Then a renewed relationship begins. Pharaoh has caught wind of this, it seems, and he's very excited as well. And so he tells them, he sends almost a kind of an official decree. All right, this is great. Go get everybody. Go get all the family and come on back. And so that's exactly what they're going to do. And, and before they leave, you know, Joseph gives them, uh, he gives them clothes, he gives them food, he gives them wagons, he gives them donkeys, because we remember, right, how important donkeys are. If you were here a couple weeks ago, he gives them donkeys, right? He gives them everything. And then right before, right before they leave, right, what does he tell them? The classic brothers. Don't fight along the way, right? In other words, they're not yet a finished product, just as none of us is yet a finished product. Amen? Well, I'm here to tell you, none of you are a finished product. (laughs) And so sure enough, they go back and they discover Jacob. They see Jacob. They're excited, understandably so. And understandably so, Jacob is not really convinced because why would you believe anything that your sons had told you? But finally, after a little while, thankfully, he sees the wagons, and the wagons do it for him. There's enough physical evidence there, and so he is elated, and he says, Enough! Let me hurriedly go and see my son who is alive while I am still alive. So they begin to return, it seems, and there will be a reunion that you will have to read about this week. So this week, of course, and as I was thinking about the story, I was thinking not just about our passage, I was thinking about all of the story of Joseph. And, and I continue, we've talked about this, I continue to wrestle with, why is it that we like this story? What is it that draws us to this story, right? One of the things, of course, is just the way that there are so many dips and twists and turns, especially the first time you read this. You always think, okay, so this is the time when, when something good is going to happen, and then something bad happens again, right? And, and okay, okay, well, this is the time, and then something else happens. And, and, and then you're saying, well, if, if just Joseph could be free, right? And, and then not only does he become free, he becomes the ruler of Egypt, right? There's all these kind of interesting twists and turns. But, of course, it's also, as we've talked about, one of the alluring things about this particular story is, is how it talks so clearly about dysfunctional families. And, and we love, right, we love conversations about dysfunctional families because it always makes us feel better about our own dysfunctional family, right? We always say, oh, well, we're not quite as bad as them at least, right? Everyone's goal is always to at least find one family who is crazier than their own, right? And so, so that's always a little bit of joy there as well, it seems to me, right? And, and as well as the, the simple fact that, you know, one of the other things about the story that, that, that I think that I at least um, have, have really enjoyed is the way that there are lots of tensions. Tensions in the story that we can relate to because we have those same tensions in our own lives. So... When Jacob is sitting there, right, and at the beginning of the story, he clearly likes Joseph more than the rest of them, right? He treats him differently. And Jacob, my guess is he knows you should treat all your children the exact same, right? Right? That that's what you're supposed to do. But most of us know that there are times, at least in our lives, when we treat our children a little bit differently because 
we like them a little bit more or less, right? Just for those moments at least, right? There, there are, there's, so there's a tension between wanting to treat them the same all the time and knowing that there are times when one of them might be a little bit more annoying than the other one, right? A few of you are like this. The rest of you internally are like, you know it. You know it. Right? So there's that tension, right, that we always see there. There's a tension even in Joseph, right? Joseph clearly is the good example, right? He's the good example, and, and so, you know, we see that. But Joseph also battles his own stuff, right? Remember the first week, of course, right, with the dreams, right? Now, Joseph, right, some of their, there's, a, there's some pride there as well. He's got some ego that he's working on there, right? And, and most of us understand that tension. We want to be good, but there are, of course, times as well when our ego gets the best of us, right? And so there's the, the tension that most of us have as well. And then there's the tension that we saw probably in the second week between uh, you, had, you had Reuben and Judah, right? And when everybody wanted, you know, the whole group think thing where they were saying, well, let's just get rid of Joseph. And you saw a couple of them making feeble attempts to say, well, no, maybe we should do something different, right? And all of us, if we are honest, when this starts whether we are five years old or whether we are 85, all of us wrestle from time to time with whether or not to go along with the whole group or whether or not we feel strongly enough that we are willing to step aside from the whole group, right? So there are all these tensions, tensions that because we understand, then we kind of appreciate the richness of the story a bit more. But there's also, I think, a couple of deeper tensions. Tensions that we actually should not try to resolve. Tensions, in fact, that we as followers of Christ, I would suggest, are called to actually live into. To not go to one extreme or one pole or the other. One of those tensions is how we understand evil in our world. Right? It's easy to go to one extreme or the other. On the one extreme, you could act like evil just doesn't exist, right? We could just act like, well, let's just kind of stay, and even though you might say it exists, by and large, you hide from it, right? We've talked about this of late. You kind of hide from it all. You just try to kind of put it out of your mind. You focus on other things, and you just try to not think about it, right? That's one extreme. The other extreme is to simply give in to the evil and to begin to become hopeless, to begin to become fearful, to begin to become cynical, right? All of those things. Those are the two extremes that we can wrestle with. And Joseph, I think, gives us a proper view of how we understand and deal with evil as followers of God. Because Joseph does not ignore it, right? Remember what he says to his brothers. Remember, he says, you are the ones who sold me into Egypt. Right? He's not beating around the bush, right? He's not like, remember me, I'm Joseph, the one that you, um, you know, you know. No, he says it straight up, explicitly. You are the ones who sold me into Egypt, right? And that's important. I love that refreshing honesty, right? We are not called to this world to kind of float around on little clouds and and play a little fiddle and act like everything is honky-dory, right? That's a a good Presbyterian word, honky-dory, right? We are not, that's not what we are called to do here. We are called to be honest about the evil that is out in the world, about the evil that we find at times in the church, about the evil that we find even inside of ourselves. However, we are also, as a people of God, called to not give in to that same kind of evil. 
right? Not to give in to by becoming cynical or hopeless. I mean, we see this with Joseph, even in the midst of all of his time, right? We talked about this probably the third or fourth week. Even in the midst of all of the evil, he does not sit there and just begin to wallow in it, right? He doesn't sit there, even though he probably had times when he said to himself, that was so dumb. Why did I keep telling my brothers these dreams? Maybe that wasn't the wisest of things. He doesn't allow that or the evil that keeps coming upon him again and again. He does not allow that to help him become hopeless or absolutely full of fear. Because as a people of God, we have to always remember that we serve a God of hope and love and grace and a God who is not done with this world. In fact, Walter Brueggemann has this quote. He says, for those who trust in God, there is always the possibility of the newness of God, of God doing a new thing. Joseph, no matter what kept coming at him, even when he was thrown in a pit and sold to slavery and thrown into prison and forgotten, he never stopped believing that there was always a possibility that God could do a new thing. And what that means to us in a world that seems to be convulsing and fracturing and bent on destroying itself is that while we can still be honest about that sin and evil. We have to continue to believe that we serve a God who is not yet done with us. For us to ignore the evil is to be dishonest about the power of sin and evil. But for us to give in to the cynicism and fear of the fear-mongerers that it seems are growing in our society is for us to be dishonest about the power of God who is alive and is not done. And in similar vein, it seems to me, that as we continue to look at this story, we see another tension, a critical tension. And that's the tension of how we understand the world around us in terms of what God does versus what role we play in it. Right? This is what we might call the difference between sovereignty of God and our own free will. We see this in a pretty remarkable way in the story of Joseph. In fact, Joseph helps us to frame exactly how it is that we understand the poles between these two things. Joseph believes beyond the shadow of a doubt that God is sovereign. We see in the story that God is in control, even in in spite of the evil, in spite of the famine that we see, which is evil. Despite the sin of the brothers and of Potiphar's wife and the forgetful cupbearer, despite all of those things, do you see what happens? How God uses all of those things and he continues to be able to control where things are going. God is able to use all of those things in order to bring salvation, not just to Joseph, not just to his brothers, not just to Egypt, but to all of the surrounding areas. 
And we might not, remember we talked about this, we may not always see it at the moment. In the moment of our despair and brokenness and loss, we may not see how God is still in control. We may not see it then. We may not even see it years from then, though we oftentimes do. There may be times when we have to have the faith to believe that we may not see it on this side of eternity. But we believe in the sovereignty of God, that God specializes in using every Everything, the things that we do well, the things that we don't do well, in order to make his mission come to fruition. I think we see this beautifully in the image of clothing. Remember here in this passage that in this clothing, before he leaves, right, before the brothers leave, that Joseph gives them some clothes, right, which is a little bit weird, I think. I mean, it's normal, okay, you know, you give them food, you give them donkeys again. Because donkeys are critical, right? You give them donkeys, you give them wagons, you give them all those things. But he also gave them clothing, which is a little bit weird until you remember, of course, the pivotal role that clothing plays in this story. It is the image, right, that of, of stripped away clothing, right? In fact, one commentator says, He who was stripped of his clothes by his brothers now clothes those same brothers. In other words, that symbol of jealousy of, depriva- of, of, of deprivation, of depravity, I should say, a symbol of sin and evil, all of a sudden now, it is a symbol of new life and hope and redemption. The clothes are a symbol that God can use anything in order to have his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. However, God's sovereignty and the fact that we believe that God can work through any situation does not mean that we then need to just sit around and do nothing. Or even more, that we should just sit around and do evil and say, hey, I wonder how God's going to work this towards his end goal. Again, why do we keep looking at Joseph? Because he is the example of the fact that God, or that that God, as foolish as it may seem to us at times, that God does not work on his own, that God wants to use us, his people, as broken and as many times as we go awry, that God wants to use us. And see, this is the tension between the sovereignty of God that says that we believe that God is in control and the role that we play. And I want you to hear this because this is Presbyterian 101. Sovereignty does not mean that we should do nothing. Sovereignty is a remarkable invitation to join in with reckless abandon what God is doing in our world. Not because it is up to us, but because it's up to God and we know that he wants to use us. And see, that matters. Because if, if, if God's mission is only up to us, then we will start doing it out of guilt. Because we're afraid if we don't, God's going to fail. Or we'll do it out of fear, right? Thinking that, well, if we don't do it, nobody else is going to do it. But the sovereignty of God says that God has taken care of this. And what it is, is an invitation for us to participate in being on the winning side. 
think about it like this, right? What's going on right now? It started Friday night. The Olympics. Imagine this. This is what I was imagining. What if the dream team, the basketball team, came up to me and said, Jerry, we would like for you to be on our team. <laughs> it may surprise you to know that they probably would not be doing that because of my remarkable skills. But do you know what I would say if they said, do you want to be on our team? You know I want to be on your team. And I would do whatever I could, right? I don't care if it's just, you know, handing them a water bottle. Maybe they let me go out there. But I would know beyond the shadow of a doubt, more than likely 99.9% .9 chance, we are winning the whole thing. I am going to win a gold medal. This is incredible, right? Can you imagine the smile, the participation in this? And I would know that has nothing to do with me, right? Maybe I would score, right? If one of them, like, picked me up and put it, right, you know, on the rim, right? Maybe I would score. I don't know, but guess what? It doesn't matter because when the big day comes, I'm up on the top shelf and I'm holding that medal and I don't care what my friends say. If they're like, well, you didn't really do anything. Hey, I got the medal, don't I? Right? And I am on the winning side. And can you imagine the joy? I don't do it because I'm guilty or if I don't do this, if I don't make that one pass, we're going to lose. No, but I get to participate. It's a done deal. The victory is there. See, the joy of the sovereignty of God is not that we then just do nothing. It's that, well, we do whatever we can because we know that we're going to win, that the mission is going to be accomplished. Whenever I think about that, I, I'm always reminded of my first church at Heritage Presbyterian near Chicago. I shared this uh, story uh, before. I shared it uh, when I was actually uh, trying to impress the pastor nominating committee uh, three years ago now. And, and, and I've said it in a couple of other uh, places for folks. It's the story of... Uh, when, when I first got there, we had, we had two children, right? Maybe you remember this. We had two children, and we were paying them, them to be there because they were the children of the piano player, right? And so we, we, we literally were paying them basically to be there. And, and after a long time, we got like four or five kids, right? So we were really excited, right? But we knew beyond the shadow of doubt that God wanted there to be more children, right? Why? Because God loves children, and churches need children, right? Churches need older people as well. But we had a lot of those, right? So, so we needed um, so we needed some more kids, right? If we had a lot of kids, we would be wanting more experienced saints, okay, right? So equal opportunity. So, but we needed children, and we knew it, so we started praying for it, right? Because we knew this is what God wants going to happen, right? So we started praying, right? And, we, and then we kept looking out the front door, right? We had a beautiful doors, right? And we opened up the doors, and there we had this beautiful parking lot because we shared it with the high school. It was gorgeous. And every Sunday morning, we kept waiting for some good Presbyterian kids to come in, and they didn't come. And so week after week, month after month, we were getting so frustrated, right? And I'm like, well, you know, what's going on? I thought we had you had this, God. We're waiting. We're here. We're ready, right? And then all of a sudden, right, uh, one Sunday morning, I, I, after worship, I go back where, where, where our Sunday school teacher was teaching our three or four kids, and, 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 and she said, you know, she was glowing. She said, oh, you won't believe it. She said, you know, we got two new kids. And I said, no, you didn't. I know that you didn't because, you know, when you're in the sanctuary and you're preaching and there's only like 50 people in there, you know if you have new people, right? And, and, and we didn't have any new people. And, and she said, no, 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 no. She said, she said you know, they, 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 were, they were two kids and, and in the middle of Sunday school, they were like peering through the windows. And so I went out, I opened up the door and I said, hey, do you want to come in? And she said, they said, yeah, sure. Well, you see, those two kids, they didn't come from the, the, from the parking lot, right? They came from the apartments, right? That were, that were behind us. And the apartments, you know, apartments didn't, the people there didn't, they didn't look like Presbyterians to us. Right? And so, and so we were like, well, are these the, really? These, oh, okay. And so we began to shift, right? 
And so we began to say, okay, well, here are the kids, and there were kids all over the place. And so we began to invest. Now, look, we kept screwing up, right? Well, we decided to have a big festival with all with, with the apartments and the church. It was going to be great. And the impetus behind that was, was because someone had won in our church, had won a pig roast. And so he's like, hey, let's have a big pig roast. We thought, oh, this is a great idea. But clearly, we didn't know our neighbors because a ton of them were Muslim. <laughs> Amazingly enough, they didn't want to come to our pig roast, right? Well, we were still trying, right? So we said, okay, so we did it next summer. Okay, well, we're not going to do the pig this year. We learned, right? Except for the fact that we didn't look at our calendar. And so this year, the next year when we did it, it was right in the middle of Ramadan. We were, we were a little bit slower than you guys, okay? So, so, but we said, okay, so the next year we learned, right? And we kept, we made mistakes. We did things that were dumb. But slowly but surely, right, we put up a basketball hoop. Kids were playing basketball. We, we, we allowed them to play cricket in our parking lot, which the property team was not very happy about. There's a lot of broken windows that come with cricket, if you're curious. And so that wasn't that great. But, but, but then we, we started partnering with the school, and we let them come over and do reading for the kids that were in apartments. They came over to our building, and we had a VBS, right? I'll remember this. I probably shared this. We had a VBS where, where, I kid you not, we had more Muslims at our VBS than we had Christians. Now, it was a low bar because we didn't have that many Christians. But the fact is still, right? And, and, and why did that happen? Because God was in control, right? And what did we have to do? We had to simply pray and ask, what could we do? And even though in the midst of the mistakes that we would make, sometimes we did things right, a lot of times we did things poorly, but what we got to do was we got to participate. And I can, you can rest assured, it is one of the top two or three joys of my time at that church was our simply being able to participate in what God had already foreordained was going to happen. And we got to be on the winning side. Every time that we had an event where we got to love more and more children, we got to hold up the medal. Even when we had totally made a bad pass or missed a shot or done anything wrong, we were still a part of what God was doing. And that's important for us to understand. It's especially important for you all to understand being kind of the congregation of which I am pastoring. I say that because I know I spend a lot of time talking about our mission and what we are called to do and what we need to be doing. And I know that at times, right, it's important for me to remind you of this as it's important for me to remember. At times, it may be, you may be thinking, well, if I'm not doing something all the time, then, you know, I'm doing something wrong and I'm going to feel guilty or, wow, this is really up to me. And I'm here to tell you, the story of Joseph tells us, no, no, there is a tension. And the first poll you have to remember clearly that God has got this. God is going to make sure that his kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. Period. No questions asked. Statement ended. But we have the remarkable opportunity to join in on that winning side. We have the remarkable opportunity to participate in what is already going to happen, and we, with joy, get to watch as God works through the things we do, through the things we don't do, through the things we do well and the things we do unwell, in the midst of evil and in the midst of good, and we get to watch and participate as we see God bring new things to life. 
And that, sisters and brothers in Christ, is the beautiful tension that we see beautifully illustrated in our story of Joseph. My hope and my prayer is that we will be a people who are convinced that God is in control. And because of that, we will participate in what he is doing with reckless abandon, knowing that God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. May it be so. Amen? Amen. Amen.